Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens issues an executive order to stop redevelopment of the Atlanta Medical Center after it closes. So here's a question. What comes next? I'll speak with Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari. Plus, financial relief is available for Georgia homeowners. So how will this $350 million plus be dispersed and what's in place to ensure it will be an equitable process? We'll hear how it all works from the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Now, those conversations coming up. But first, we'll begin with this, and that is the weather, specifically Hurricane Ian. Ryan Willis is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. He told Closer Look about Ian's current path. The immediate area of concern is going to be across the um, peninsula of Florida as we head into uh, tomorrow into Thursday. Um, The forecast is to make landfall um, likely somewhere in the Tampa area uh, region of, of the Florida peninsula. Willis went on to say what Georgia might expect from Ian as it moves out of Florida. As Ian moves northward across Florida, um, some of that intensity will obviously diminish over land, uh, but it will still be a pretty potent system as it heads northward. Um, the official forecast is as a deteriorating tropical storm um, into southern Georgia by late, later in the day on Friday um, and into Saturday. Um, so as, as that occurs, uh, the potential for heavier rainfall and gusty winds will increase at least across um, you know, portions of the state. Now, the National Weather, the National Hurricane Center, rather, has also issued tropical storm warnings for two of Georgia's coastal counties. That would be Camden and Glen. Georgians there should expect gusts approaching 65 miles per hour on Thursday evening and sustain winds up to 40 miles per hour. Tropical storm watches are also in effect for several other coastal counties. Now, we'll have more news later in the program. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It was jarring news to some, to some, when Wellstar Health System announced it would be closing the the Atlanta Medical Center. Now, as reported, it was a bipartisan, public, private, and community level of support when Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced plans to help Atlanta's Grady Hospital that could expect an influx of patients due to the upcoming closure of AMC. Today I'm announcing that the state will dedicate some of our remaining ARPA allotment to provide $130 million to permanently increase Grady Memorial Hospital's capacity by nearly 200 beds. Grady is already in the process of adding more than 40 beds that will be available by November the 1st, so these additional 200 will come online in a rolling fashion as Grady moves into its new surgical tower next year. This is more than enough capacity to cover the average patient census at AMC. 
Now, Grady Health System President and CEO Dr. John Hoppert said the new investment provided an enormous shot of health care resources for the community. It is our intent to bring upwards of 185 additional beds online as quickly and as safely as possible. This investment, combined with Grady's short-term capacity plans and the state's provided field hospital, will allow Grady to provide patient care to those who have been left behind. It is proof again why Atlanta can't live without Grady. Now, the Atlanta Medical Center is located in, depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers. Some say Midtown, some say Old Fourth Ward. I say Old Fourth Ward. In other words, also, too, understand this. Again, a cliche, it is prime real estate. And Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has issued an executive order to stop redevelopment of the Atlanta Medical Center after it closes. But that leaves a lot of other questions, mainly what comes next or should come next. Joining Closer Look now is Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari. The Atlanta Medical Center is located in her district. Councilmember, welcome. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. I appreciate it. Let's begin here, just because I, I didn't get a chance to ask you this, but when you first heard that AMC was closing, just your reaction to that? Um, I would have to say, if I'm, my honest answer was uh, surprise, shock, um, frustration, and later, quite frankly, anger. You say anger. Why? Because when I take a look at the procurement that Wellstar made at the five hospitals and I look at the two that were shut down, both were in both were in Fulton County, um, in southern parts of Fulton County, that primarily helps low-income people of color. And the three hospitals they chose to keep open were in affluent areas. Mm-hmm. So to me, that says their bottom line is profit, not the lives and health care of those who needed the most. Mayor Andre Dickens says he was blindsided by it. You know, he would have wanted some more answers, would have wanted a meeting. Have you had an opportunity to talk to anybody from Wellstar? I'm just curious. Absolutely not. Do there you... has been no opportunity. Um, I wish there had been much. You know, we, we have we're very lucky that we have a mayor that has been super outspoken on this issue. Um, as he as he said, he was blindsided. There was no opportunity to try to meet to, to, to discuss anything. It reminds me of when Grady years ago, there was that threat of Grady going under mm-hmm. and there was a huge community rally to bring forth the funds needed to keep Grady open because we all knew what would happen if Grady ever went under the spillover effect that would have on surrounding medical agencies, how they would go under as a result. And so the community rallied because there was communication, because there was planning, because there was foresight, because, because people knew uh, that the community needed that healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I think we could have done the same thing here. And again, now we had to have another collaborative effort to get some money for Grady to help them support what we everyone says will be definitely an influx of patients. That $130 million that uh, Governor Brian Kemp is allowing to come to Grady, it's not a, a permanent fix, but it does help. It does help. It would also help if the governor would um, fight for Medicaid expansion. That would also be great. There are other things that we can do. Um, Yes, funding and continuing to give money to the Grady healthcare system is needed, but also long-term solutions are also needed. There has to be legislative and policy changes if we're gonna if we're gonna see what seems to be an increasingly floundering healthcare system in our state and in our city become better. To that note, with this moratorium here, it's listeners, and I've had a couple of questions. Listeners said, "Well, you know, let's back up first because if we can do this for something like." And impending what we know will be a development. We don't know what it could be. Um, right. Why Why haven't Atlanta maybe done this in the past, too, for other developments you could think of? And I know you weren't on council then, but just your right. thoughts on if you think of the Gulch or, or you know, mm-hmm. Mercedes-Benz Stadium or any of these big developments that have come online within the last 10 years. Do you think maybe this will set some type of precedent that perhaps this is something, a tool the city should use uh, before big development can come in and and really impact a community. Well, I hope this would set the precedent. Um, and to those pieces in the past, I could only speculate, but clearly it was the political will of certain people in power to have those developments go through for whatever their bottom line was. Um, like the Gulch deal would have been great to have seen transportation be utilized as a central piece of what is the heart of the city, um, especially development that's going to affect us for decades, if not centuries to come. In terms of this situation, um, I greatly applaud the mayor for taking this stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that it's an opportunity. You know, precedents are, da- are, are slippery are slippery slopes. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that, though, with developments such as these, where we're taking away a healthcare system, a trauma one unit, um, where we see uh, 
where we see an agency whose clear clear initiative is profit, not not putting not putting the people who need healthcare the most first. Um, this was done with the intention of making sure that if the community was going to be robbed of a healthcare system, they certainly weren't going to have these 15 parcels sold out from underneath them without any input. Because I can't think of anything worse than taking away people's primary mode of healthcare, and then on top of it, then taking the land that supported that healthcare system and selling it to the to the highest bidder for for who knows what without any community input. Before that we, simply cannot be allowed. Before we continue on with the, the possibilities, but I want to go back because you did say you, mm-hmm. you, you all have not had a chance to talk to Wellstar. Have you reached out? Do you want to? Is it worth now even still having a conversation with Wellstar about that? Oh, well, it's always worth the conversation. I mean, with this situation, we're, I'm, I'm following the mayor's lead. Mm-hmm. He's 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 pushing for them to meet with him. He's having conversations. This is a situation where I'm supporting I'm supporting my mayor because I'm in lockstep and in agreement of, with everything he is doing. Um, and I, I'm very grateful to the administration that they've given uh, they've given me heads up every step of the way as well. So there's also been communication. Um, of course, it's worth having a conversation with HealthStar. They're still a healthcare system, mm-hmm. and so if we, they're still going to be impacting lives, the lives of people in Atlanta, whether or not AMC is open. So mm-hmm. the conversations must continue, even if we are not happy with their current actions. So let's talk about what this executive order does. I know it directs, I believe it's the Department of City Planning, because pretty much mm-hmm. even for whatever your development's going to be, you have to start, obviously, in the city of Atlanta. You, you got to get permits right. and zoning applications, all that. And for our listeners who are not uh, familiar with what exactly this executive order will do, tell them. I mean, it essentially allowed, essentially puts a moratorium on any development at this location. As you heard the mayor say, this, you know, this area was a cornerstone for the old Fourth Ward community and the city of Atlanta. Um, in many ways, it was a job generator, it was an economic stimulant, it took care of people, especially after the after Wellstar closed the South Fulton location. And so now um, the, the intention of this is to ensure that the community has an opportunity to have it that we, one, measure the impact of this closure because it's happened so quickly that we don't know yet the impact that it will have. But two, making sure that after we measure that impact, the community has a say and that we have a say in what goes in this area to best meet the needs of these neighborhoods that are being robbed of this healthcare system. So in other words, they, they the city won't take any applications for rezoning, building permits, mm-hmm. land. Right. Until we have more data. Yeah. Now let me ask you this. At 15 parcels of land, that that's 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 good property. That's prime real estate over there. You and I both know that. That's in your district. Yeah. Um, typically, as you and I both know and everybody else listening, usually what goes up is something big <laughs> and expensive and Correct. housing, um, your thoughts on, on that? Uh, I mean, we are in desperate need of housing. We're building at, what, a 20, 22,000 unit deficit. We're mm-hmm. building slowly we built since the 90s, and we're less dense than we were in the 40s and the 50s. So, yes, we're in desperate need of housing because when there's shortages, costs go up. Basic, basic, uh, basic economics. So, yes, do we need housing? For sure. Do we need increased only luxury housing? No, there's also the conversation of affordable housing. Um, and I'm not talking just for people who make 40, 50, 60,000. I'm also talking sure. about folks that make under $20,000 a year, mm-hmm. talking about supportive housing, transitional housing for our unsheltered population, um, housing for our city employees, housing for our working force. Um, so this is also an opportunity, I think, with the mayor taking the lead on this, it's an opportunity for us to really sit down and take a look at something that is in the heart of Old Fourth Ward, as you said, I also call it Old Fourth Ward, and the heart of Old Fourth Ward, um, and a major area that has you know transit connectivity, mm-hmm. and has an opportunity for high density, and really take a look and see how can we we may be losing this huge healthcare system, but how can we meet the needs of housing in a city that is in desperate need of more options? Let me ask you this, and and I don't, I don't know the value of that property. I just know it's prime real mm-hmm. estate, right? Could you all having discussions about perhaps maybe working with partners, you know, that whole public-private partnerships, mm-hmm. and trying to secure that that property? Or do you think it's possible to get another medical center there? I think that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. In terms of the medical center, um, the truth is, is that with it, AMC is a very outdated center. Mm-hmm. And this is where it frustrates me more, because even though the lift to keep it a medical center would be heavy, that's what the work is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, helping the most under-resourced communities is harder. It's easier to help people who are affluent, who have the resources, who have the privilege to pay their bills, who have the ability to get from one place to the other without without alternative modes of transit. 
it's harder to do the work for the people who need it most. But that's exactly why we're supposed to be in this work. Mm -hmm. That's why the, that's what this job is. So, yes, it's possible to do another medical center there. It would take a lot of work. It would take an overhaul. It would take a lot of money, but it's possible and I think worth it. Um, but at the same time, it's also possible to do a public private partnership to talk about our housing needs and doing mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things there, whether it's uh, centers for people who are experiencing um, homelessness or addiction or mental health issues and partnership with other city partners who are doing the work. There's with a, a land amount this big, um, quite frankly, the possibilities are endless. But again, um, we'll see with the mayor what happens with this with this moratorium, with what the data provides us. With this moratorium, I imagine then the city would also be doing some type of feasibility study, trying to get mm -hmm. a value of it. Maybe if Wellstar, if, if y'all are you know, speaking nicely to each other to see what kind of, you know, financial terms they're looking for, is that you have to do something in this time. Right. So what will y'all be doing? I think that still remains to be seen. I think absolutely a feasibility study and value. Um, from my understanding, there's been feasibility studies of the hospital in the past. I have not seen those things, mm -hmm. but I think this is the opportunity to data to data gather on the feasibility study of the hospital, of the value of the land, because parts of this, while while the main buildings are in District Five, it's also in District Two. So that's weird. It's also been active. I know. It's weird. There's a, across the street. It's in one council member's district, and then on mm -hmm. the other, that that's a weird. Uh... Well, they're going to be redistricting. Uh, are you concerned that it can even be further complicated because it could be in somebody to be in three districts? Who knows? Uh, it's almost as if um, politicians shouldn't draw, draw their own boundary lines or if, you know, an independent party should actually be doing that. But <laughs> they, it is what it is. I don't know if it'll be further. It'll be, I, I will say that the current council is working to make things with redistricting is working really hard to make sure that that type of split doesn't happen anymore. So um, we have some brilliant folks that I trust deeply that are that are working on redrawing the maps and there'll be community input sessions on that. So um, please, if you're listening, show up to those. Um, they're coming there they're in the coming weeks. But um, it is weird that it's shared in the district, but also um, in ways it's also great because it means we're not, I'm not alone in the fight. And I have somebody like Councilmember Faroki who's amazing to help me through this. Let me ask you this, Councilmember Bakhtiari, if you had, if they said, here's your magic wand, you know where I'm going, mm -hmm. and poof, this is what you want, what would you want there? If it wasn't a state-of-the-art hospital that actually wasn't private, but actually public and accepted all forms of Medicaid and actually allowed for expansion. To well, I think you've just answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come um, on now. <laughs> come on now. I would love for that to happen, but if we were also, uh, I think, I think having a state-of-the-art hospital that is actually when I take a look at the fact that we have so many hospitals shutting down in rural Georgia and ambulatory services going offline mm -hmm. and funding drying up because it's not private, it's not public, it's private. Mm -hmm. um, I would love for there to be a, a state of the art medical center there that was driven by multiple partners at the table and that prioritized treating everyone um, despite their economic status, their economic status, their, their skin color, their, their background, their ability. I mean, we're living in a state and we're living in a country where healthcare is increasing by the day, um, where insurance is becoming less and less affordable. And it's, I mean, if you, you know, pray that you don't have to ride in an ambulance or you're going to be in debt for God knows how long. Mm -hmm. So having something there that's affordable for people who need it the most, I mean, my, I'm, terrified about the homicide rates that will go up as a result of this and the well, people that will die and having because a, of this. And, and also folks saying, look, we need, we know we have Grady. We need yeah. another trauma center of that level. And mm -hmm. you and I both know that trauma victims, uh, they, they've been flown from all throughout this, the state to, to oh. Grady and to Atlanta Medical Center. What does it say then to you about the will of this community? Because I've been here for 20 some years and I've always been told about the Atlanta way and how Atlanta comes together in crisis. We've talked about how this has happened before when we thought Grady's doors were going to shut. Right. And everyone came together. Is this an opportunity now that you are championing that this is a crisis moment for the city? And this is a time when all hands are on deck, everybody from different sectors, public, private, philanthropic, whatever, we got to come together. Right. Is, that, is that really truly the solution you think the best solution? 
community is always a solution. Um, I mean, the thing is, is we become most open to positive change when we hit rock bottom. So in the loss, there's an opportunity for community to reconvene and to be reminded of what is important and why this fight is so important because in every struggle, people are, people are brought together. Um, and I think that's an opportunity here. There's always opportunities in failure, right? Like, yes, it is devastating the way this played out. I am very upset with the lack of consideration by the board and leadership at Wellstar, um, not just to the people they serve, but to their own staff um, and the lack of communication. But at the same time, this, this loss is an opportunity for the city to not only lead, but to listen to listen to the community members that have been doing this work for decades, to the people who are experts on their own living conditions, to alternative forms of medicine, to to all the partners at the table who are willing to put money forth and to to do everything they can to help to help serve this community. Um, there's always a positive with things like this because it strengthens and brings people together. Council member Liliane Bakhtiari, the Atlanta Medical Center is located in her district. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. closer look we'll continue in just a moment but we want to bring you some other news items because georgia power customers today's a big day hearings began earlier today regarding georgia power's request to raise its race molly samuel has the details georgia power is asking the state public service commission to approve an increase that would add more than 14 dollars a month for an average household that would start in january there would be other smaller increases in 2024 and 2025 as well The utility says it needs the money to improve its grid, invest in renewable energy, and increase profits for shareholders. The five elected PSC commissioners make the final decision on Georgia Power's rates. There are three days of hearings this week, more scheduled in November, and then the commissioners will vote in December. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And an update to this, Georgia Power Chairman, President and CEO Chris Womack testified and answered questions today regarding the rate hike. Now, here's an exchange where he's asked about the estimated total amount the utility giant could receive. Okay. Do you know the dollar amount of the increase in traditional base rates proposed for January 2023? Uh, the increment addition in 23 would be $888 million in the first year, 107 in 24 and 45 in, in 25. And we'll have more throughout these hearings this week. In other news, Democrats and Republicans are focusing on women voters in Georgia's upcoming midterms. As we hear from our WABE politics reporter, Raul Bali, the recent campaign events have taken place. Well, they're highlighting different approaches. Former Republican Georgia U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler has focused on registering and turning out conservative voters since her defeat last year to now U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock. On Saturday morning in Roswell, she spoke to supporters at an event launching a women's outreach effort. Georgia should not be a battleground state. We're a red state, and we have to keep fighting for that because the stakes are here at home, but it impacts the whole country, and we saw that in January 2021. It changed the future of our country. Leffler says she does not believe abortion is the biggest issue for women voters. It might be a top five issue now. It's not a top four issue. Uh, Families are hurting from inflation, high grocery prices. They're worried about their kids' educational progress in schools. And the Democrats are desperate to make abortion the issue because they don't have a record to stand on. On Sunday, also in Roswell, Planned Parenthood CEO Alexis McGill-Johnson drew a very different picture. She talked about states rolling back abortion rights after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It has been devastating um, the last three months, you know, to see um, the 17 states move so quickly to, to ban access to care. And at the same time, while these states are moving to deny access to care, we are seeing people stand up and fight back. We have seen registrations increase among women, young people, and people of color across the country. 
and she says that could make a difference in November. The voters need to actually understand the nuances of how these laws will impact them. Look, if the people um, of Georgia have already indicated that the majority of them support access to abortion in their state and now they are understanding the implication, we believe it will motivate them out to the polls. Georgia's new law prohibits abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy with some exceptions. Raul Bally, WABE News. And as immigration courts nationwide close a record number of immigration cases, here in Georgia, there's a backlog that's still growing as we hear from Emily Wu Pearson. Some reasons there's progress nationally include additional judges, more cases terminated due to defective charges, and the return of judges using discretion to close a case that is not a priority for deportation. That's according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, a nonprofit that tracks national immigration data. By the end of last fiscal year, Georgia's backlog was a little more than 50,000 cases. Now it's about 67,000. However, more of those decided cases in the state have allowed immigrants to stay in the U.S. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And get this, after 30 years, 30 years of legal battles, several cities and counties near Lake Lanier now have contracts guaranteeing them access to water from the lake. Their right to use it had been challenged by Florida and Alabama as part of the long-running fights over water between the states. Rebecca Shelton is the acting director with the Gwinnett County Department of Water Resources. She says this is good news for residents and businesses. We've been using Lake Lanier for our water supply for a very long time, but this is the first time we've had a long-term contract that guarantees water supply for Gwinnett, and it's an amount that will take us far into the future. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with Georgia in the highest profile case of the so-called water wars. But get this, there's still another legal challenge ongoing, though. So technically, I guess it's not over. Finally, the Center for Civic Innovation is holding a community conversation, taking my words, tomorrow about overcrowding at the Atlanta City Jail and the Fulton County Detention Center. Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt, Robin Hasten of Women on the Rise, and Tiffany Roberts of the Southern Center for Human Rights will be in discussion of the, quote, a tale of two jails. Topics will include policing, diversion, and the court system. The forum is set to begin at 6 p.m. inside the Fulton County Central Library at 1 Margaret Mitchell Square. That's in downtown Atlanta. Closer Look returns in just a moment. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I want to read a couple of emails from you all about that segment regarding Wellstar. One listener writes, Wellstar did not invest enough in these hospitals in the black communities. Trauma visits to AMC downtown, 50000 per year. South Atlanta is in a health care crisis. Real estate is more profitable than hospitals. It's easier to give up on these hospitals. And also, someone else says, if I had a magic wand, not only would I make that property a state-of-the-art health care center trauma, I would be, it would be free and the funding would be generated from the movie industry. Look at y'all. Maybe y'all should be in office. Anyway, as we discussed yesterday on the program, send me your emails, Atlanta's housing inventory is still low with a very high demand. But with rising interest rates, thanks to the Federal Reserve, housing sales, they're dipping. In fact, here was one headline I read, quote, the superheated housing market is cooling off. Home prices have fallen about Six percent since their peak in June, close quote. Still, since 2020, the year of what else, COVID-19, the impact of the virus reached every aspect of our lives. Let's be really clear, all of us. Millions of homeowners missed their mortgage payments due to a financial hardship related to COVID-19, and some are still behind. Now, here in Georgia, there's $354 million available to Georgia homeowners who experience a a financial hardship. It's from the American Rescue Plan. And joining me now and returning to the program with more is Tanya Currington-Curry, Deputy Commissioner for Housing at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Welcome back. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for having me today. Let's begin with this, because I mentioned that $354 million. Now, is that the only funding your department has received for mortgage assistance? I know, I think we talked to you all about rental assistance funding, but this is for folks with mortgages, correct? That is correct. Um, This money is $354 million available for homeowners who have experienced, um, you know, a hardship, as you mentioned, related to the coronavirus pandemic. And so this is strictly mortgage assistance and available to uh, homeowners across the state. Now, let's back up because I already got some emails. Now, folks know folks have a lot of questions, but let's let's start here. 
you making it very clear yeah. this is for homeowners, not just if anyone owns any property, just homeowners. Like not if you own a uh, gas owners. station. Okay, homeowners. And you yes. they have to have endured some type of hardship directly related to the pandemic. That is correct. So um, it's for homeowners in Georgia who have had some sort of financial hardship due to the pandemic. That could have been um, um, something like a reduction in their income or a loss of income or maybe a significant medical occurrence that caused them to have to use funds for medical Mm -hmm. um, for that medical assistance as opposed to paying their mortgage. And so these funds are available to anyone who may fall into that category um, who owns a home in Georgia and has, you know, just gotten behind on their mortgage payments. Now let's back up this funding or you all, will you all disperse this to the counties or it's going to come directly out of your department? So uh, that's a great question. This is a little bit different. This is different uh, from rental assistance. This, all of this money is coming directly um, through the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. So uh, both programs came from the Treasury Department, but this program, um, the money came directly to the Department of Community Affairs. And we're the sole administrator, if you will, in the state of this particular program and these federal funds. So uh, we are um, making this money available in every corner of the state and um, have been working to get the word out statewide. Okay, so getting the word out, I don't think that's a problem, but now let's back up. Let's talk about your infrastructure and your personnel because I think you know and and what we've talked about with other departments, listen, when you have something like this, you got to make sure everything from the, the web, if there's a website portal, if there's a hotline, making sure you have bilingual assistance as well. How are you all through your lens, do you feel in terms of you're ready from an infrastructure standpoint and in personnel to handle processing these applications? Yes. Well, thankfully, we have uh, we're very prepared to get these um, applications processed and to get this money out to Georgians that need it. Um, just um, very briefly, you may remember that there was another uh, program in Georgia called the Hardest Hit Fund that um, ended several years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it was a similar program, but it was based on the economic downturn, um, you know, back in 09, you know, 10, um, several years ago. And so this program um, is different, but um, it kind of has the same infrastructure. We do have a portal where applicants can go to Um, apply and to see what's required to become um, um, an eligible applicant in this program. They go to that website, they apply online. And of course, um, as you mentioned, um, we have got um, the applications available in several different languages. And of course, if someone is unable to access the website for any reason at all, they can um, also um, contact us by phone. And they're, you know, the application is downloadable if they want to download it and print one out and send it back in. So there are a number of ways that um, Georgia homeowners can access the program. Mm-hmm. The best way is through the portal, but it certainly is accessible in many other ways. And and Commissioner, let, let's uh, back up for a moment. What are you telling homeowners? What information do you want them to gather already, even if they haven't started accessing the portal? What information do you want them to know they will need to have? That, that is also a great, um, a great point to stress. They need to be able to um, uh, basically show or evidence what that delinquency was. So uh, most people are going to have a delinquent mortgage statement. Um, I will mention, Rose, that these funds are also available uh, for housing-related expenses, such as uh, property taxes, homeowners insurance, utilities, that type of thing related to, of course, the home ownership. And so they would need to show those back due notices mm-hmm. or those back due statements um, in order to show that they're behind on that mortgage or on the utilities associated with that home. I do have a question from a listener here, and I, I think we covered it, but I just want to be clear. What if you are a, yes. a you own property, you're a homeowner of a property that you're renting? Well, if you're the homeowner and you've been unable to um, to uh, pay uh, the mortgage, mm-hmm. then you may be eligible for this program if you've had a financial hardship and you've um, experienced, you know, some sort of hardship due to the pandemic. There can't be, however, a double dipping situation mm-hmm. where you are, um, you know, getting monies from your um, 
from your tenant, for example, as well as mortgage assistance. So all of that is going to be kind of vetted on our end to make sure that um, that that there is a, a valid uh, mortgage obligation that's due and that there's not kind of um, double dipping, if you will, into both programs. How will you all vet all of these? Because these, you're going to get if you haven't already, you're going to get flooded with applications. Yeah. I'm curious. I asked you earlier about personnel. You you all have enough folks that are, can do all the background on all these applications? Because you could, you yes, could get yes. over it, up in hundreds of thousands. Realistically, you could. We, we, we absolutely could. Um, you know, right now we're probably in the thousands of in terms of applications that we've received, but we have a full staff of, of um team that is, uh, we call them processors. And so Mm -hmm. once an application comes in um, and uh, most of the documentation is available along with that application, a processor is going to be assigned and they're going to start working that application. But we have quite a few processors. We've got them working, um, you know, uh, every day throughout the week to process applications. Applications are approved every day and payments are made on a regular basis. And so, so far it's going very well. Um, our goal, though, is to make sure that we're getting the word out and make sure that people are getting to that website or contacting us for access to these funds. Because, as you mentioned, it is a it is a significant amount of funding that we received, and we are um, so excited to be able to assist and to help in getting this funding out to Georgians in need. If you're just joining us, the voice you hear is Tanya Curriton Curry, Deputy Commissioner for Housing at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, and we're talking about funding. There's 354 million dollars available two Georgia homeowners who experience a financial hardship due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is coming from the American Rescue Plan. So let me understand this. You all have already started processing applications? We absolutely have. We've dispersed um, over $30 million so far in in uh, in payments out to, um, you know, bring people current in their mortgage obligations. And that has assisted um, over 16 um, hundred homeowners throughout the state. So um, that's about 30 million of the 354 million. And we've got a pipeline that we're working uh, as we speak. And so that money continues to go out on a, on a weekly basis to, um, as I said, bring those homeowners current. But there still is plenty of room and plenty of money for um, homeowners to apply if they are um, meet the um, requirements. Mm-hmm. And we really encourage people to go to the website and kind of um, uh, take a look at all the information that's out there to see if they are eligible and to apply if they're in, in need of this assistance. I have a question from a listener who says the federal PPP loans got an online portal to see who they were awarded to as an accountability measure. Will y'all have some similar style going in place for this program to make sure that you know, um, folks aren't, uh, as we say, you know, duping the system? Yes, we absolutely have... Um, uh, mechanisms in place to frankly just uh, guard against fraud and um, you know double dipping and, and all of that type of thing. It's not the type of program, however, because these are individuals and individual loans where we're going to be you know publishing a list of people who have received sure. it. Mm-hmm. But um, we absolutely are um, you know monitoring, and that's a big part of what we do because with all of the federal programs that we administer, we are uh, accountable to. Um, um, the nation and to and to the citizens of Georgia for you know the best and um, you know most um, compliant use of those funds, mm-hmm. if you will. So at the end of every federal program, we're required to kind of report um, and to give kind of accounting of how the money was used back to mm-hmm. the federal government. And this program is no different. Um, we'll be doing that to the U.S. Treasury upon the completion of this program. So there are definitely compliance and. Um, um, fraud deterrence that are in place at, mm-hmm. at every juncture of the program. I love our listeners. One writes, how can the public be sure that well-off landowners don't cash in while others are left without help? Don't you love our listeners? <laughs> Let's back up for a moment, um, Commissioner, too, because when you talk about the importance of this type of assistance, we've had this conversation before, Just, I want you to just kind of step outside of being the Deputy Commissioner for Housing at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, but from a human interest standpoint, the importance of having a program like this and what you all are able to do. You know, I I tell our staff all the time, Rose, that this money is really uh, life-changing money, um, both the rental assistance and the mortgage assistance, Mm -hmm. but this money is life-changing 
um, funding that is kind of a one once in a lifetime opportunity from the federal government to bring people whole and to bring people current in a situation that we never could have experienced the whole the whole pandemic situation that we're all um, kind of living through. And so we really see it as an opportunity to keep people housed, to keep people safe, to keep people uh, protected. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is really the biggest um, you know, blessing, if you will, that we see um, here and that I see personally in terms of being able to get this money out uh, across the state. And if 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 there's a homeowner who's eligible, mm-hmm. um, there's there's nothing that's really going to stop them from being able to access this mm-hmm. uh, as long as they come forward and start the application process and and you know are able to produce some of those documentation, some of the documentation. And we understand that everybody's not going to have you know, complete computer access or the ability to upload yeah. the documents um, in, in the quickest way. But the um, but the application is available to print out in hard copy and send in. And it also can be requested through our um, through our 877 number as well. And so it is absolutely our goal to reach every corner of the state and to make sure that um, individuals know that there's no reason for them to uh, to remain delinquent on their uh, mortgages or in worst case to even lose their homes mm-hmm. because this money also helps people that are are facing you know imminent foreclosures if mm-hmm. you will because they haven't been able to pay um to pay their mortgages and so we really want people to know that this money is available and available to stop those types of things um if they if they start the process and 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 let us you know know how they can you know what they have to do to kind of connect with the program and receive these funds let me ask you is there anything that you all provide in the meantime while their application is being processed that perhaps they could use and i don't know how all the more the banks and mortgages are all set up but if there's someone is in a process uh, is there anything that you can give them that they can tell you know the bank or whomever look i'm in the process of getting some assistance and can y'all just chill and you know wait to the time to hear the yeah, outcome? well you know there's no, there's nothing that we have that's going to provide uh you know kind of a legal stoppage mm-hmm. if you will because we don't have that that power through this program but certainly when people um share with their lenders that they're participating in this program the lenders are eager to and the servicers of the of the these mortgages are eager to access this funding because that means that this person is able to stay in their home mm-hmm. it means that they the lender are getting the full amount that they were due as opposed to maybe a reduced amount or um, you know having to deal with the foreclosure after the fact which also incurs costs for the lenders and that type of thing so in most instances the the banks and the servicers are very happy to know that um, borrowers are working with our program and uh, we're all working together to really get this money out so while we don't have any um, type of legal way. Mm-hmm. If it gets to if someone gets to, um, you know, receiving the eviction notice, for example, the ability of of our staff to to say that this person has started the process, or for the person to represent that they've started this process, is certainly beneficial in um, helping um, that process kind of, uh, you know, hold on for a little while to receive these funds. And and commissioner, I have another question. Listener asks: Is there an income cap? Um, there are income requirements, um, and a lot of that detail is is at our uh, website. Mm-hmm. It, it varies, um, you know, depending on what area of the state you live in, and it's very accessible and um, um, user friendly at our website. I don't know if I've said the website yet. Yeah, but it's and, and www. We'll... No, go ahead. Okay. No, I was going to say we're going to have all this information. Say... Yeah, but go ahead. I was just going to say it's www.georgiamortgageassistance. What about the process time? And I know that you you said you have a lot of people working, but what has been, have you asked in terms of from from your staff, hey, you all, can you give me a, uh, I guess, an average in terms of process time from when the application comes through and if everything they've they've presented all the information and then you've made a decision or disbursement has been made? What's that, that process time? Yes, I can say that the processing time, uh, best case, is between 45 to 60 days to get it approved. And that's a scenario where um, a uh, homeowner has uh, applied and, you know, submitted all the documentation that we need to to get the application processed. What happens next is 
it kind of leaves our hands and it goes over to the to the mortgage servicer. Mm -hmm. And so they verify those amounts and then um, that's when the payment is made. So um, from start to finish, I would say probably about 45 to 60 days in best case scenario. Um, sometimes, however, if a, um, a borrower applies and there may be some additional questions um, or additional documentation needed, it could be a little bit longer. But um, say, for example, they um, list on the application that they need some sort of utility um, uh, assistance mm -hmm. and they don't include um, back to information. Mm -hmm. Our processors are going to reach out and say, can you provide a copy of your you know, water and sewer bill or your electric bill? And then that will provide the documentation to pay those bills as well. And so um, it can you know, there's a little bit of give and take there. But for the most part, if a borrower gets their information in, um, this information is processed very quickly uh, in, in a timely fashion to bring them current and keep them in their homes. Wow, 45 to 60 days. I know someone listening is saying, wow, that's a lot. But I guess if you're talking about trying to make sure that people have all their paperwork. So even if everyone has all their paperwork, it's still 45 to 60 days. Wow. Yeah, it takes it takes that long. And again, only because uh, the the next step after we pull all the package together it's going to the the mortgage servicers. And I can tell you that that timing has increased and continues to go down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're private entities and private businesses, and they are receiving uh, applications from all over the country, right? Um, a, a servicer may work in multiple states. And so they're having the same uh, kind of constraints and adjustments that we've had to do in terms of bringing on staff and reviewing and processing and all that. But it really does move um, um, fairly quickly. And it, the homeowner can get that comfort uh, to know that their application is moving and it's been completed and that those payments will be made. And that's that's really what we're seeing in terms of the 1,600 people who have been um, helped so far. Mm -hmm. And we're certainly hoping to help thousands more. And Commissioner, as we begin to wrap up, the payment goes directly to the homeowner or to the lender? It goes directly to the lender. In this case, on the mortgage side, those funds are, uh, you know, due to the um, to the lender and to the or to their servicer, and so those funds are paid directly to them, and um, the homeowner is made made whole, or brought current. What's the, so? Can you give an estimate in terms of how many households, how many homeowners you all have helped thus far? I know you said about thirty million has gone out. Yes, we've helped so far about um, 1,600 uh, homeowners in Georgia, and that number is growing, and, and there certainly is room to help thousands more, uh, you know, based on that $354 million. So we really, really want people to uh, be aware and um, accessing this program and our website to learn how they can become eligible. Now, let me ask you this also. Is there a cutoff for when you all will not be accepting applications? Uh, there will be a, a cutoff in, in future years. Um, statutorily, the program runs through 2020, 2026. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly expect to expend the bulk of these funds well before that because, you know, people are in need now. Um, and so that's kind of the back end of it. But um, if it's anything like the way our um, other programs have been running, um, people are really coming forward as soon as they hear more about the program and, um we expect this this money to be dispersed very quickly to those who need it. Um, and all they have to do is uh, go to the website to check it out and learn more about how to become eligible. And in terms of identity verification, driver's license or official state ID? Yes, they can provide either, either one of those. And then, of course, the documents, uh, like their mortgage documents and their utilities doc documents will need to match up with those with that documentation as well. Commissioner, what can you tell me in terms of if there had, if y'all have been able to make some changes because you, you saw some limitations or you saw some issues? I mean, you said it's been running smoothly, but did it begin running smoothly? Have you had to make some adjustments? You know, this program has um, run very smoothly. Um, you may, as I may have mentioned before, um, the Hardest Hit Fund was a program that we administered um, pre prior to this program. So many of our staff members are very familiar with it and just have the, the um, kind of background in doing this type of work and, and uh, 
um, processing mortgage delinquencies and those types of things. So it has gone very smoothly. I will say also that the federal government and the treasury um, put a process in place that um, applies to all the states. Mm -hmm. And we kind of, uh, you know, adhere to those guidelines. And uh, it's a little bit different than rental assistance because we're the only administration, you know, entity dispersing the funds throughout the state. So we've got all the information, we've got all the money. Um, it's a one-stop shop for people to go to for this assistance. And so it, it has been smooth because it's, it's very clear and people aren't, um, you know, looking for another provider or another entity. Now, certainly uh, other jurisdictions mm-hmm. um, throughout the state could have used any of the other stimulus money um, to provide mortgage and, and rental assistance. Um, but this is money that's just available for, from one source and it's a one-stop shop. So it's been pretty uh, straightforward to administer and to, to set up and to get it rolling and to, to keep, um, keep progressing with getting these funds out. What have you all been receiving in terms of if there's any data to, to reflect if they're mostly urban areas or maybe you've seen a, a, a smaller percentage of applicants from rural communities? And if so, does that give you some type of insight in terms of getting the word, word out? It absolutely does. And we, we certainly see um, a little bit more participation from our larger communities and our larger uh, counties and metropolitan areas uh, throughout the state. Um, however, we're, we're actually in, um, you know, many, many counties throughout the state. And our goal is to really reach everyone in every county because we know that there are homeowners in need throughout the state. And so we do keep that data. We keep the numbers really county by county mm-hmm. and just, um, you know, glancing at it, obviously in the metropolitan areas, we see a great need and a great use of the funds, but um, it's available in, in, in equal format to anyone who's mm-hmm. in need um, across the state. And from Twitter, someone says, you know, are HOA back dues and legal expenses also eligible within this assistance program? It's a good question. So um, HOA fees and condo fees are definitely um, due. Uh, The legal fees would not necessarily be due, but that's probably something that the program um, would want to look at just a little bit closer. Uh, But property taxes, homeowners insurance, and those utilities that I mentioned are gonna be the type of things that um, fall under housing related expenses. Wow. Um, And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of room there to to bring a homeowner current and to allow them to kind of move forward. All right, we're probably gonna have to play this program again. Thank you so much, Tanya Currington Curry, deputy deputy commissioner for housing at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, and we'll have links to all of this for this assistance. Thank you so much for taking the time and and giving our listeners all this important information. Thank you. Thank you, Rose, so much for having us on. We appreciate it. All right. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.